you have your Bibles, why don't you open them now to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We are wrapping up the series of Ecclesiastes. I plan to preach two more sermons in this book today and one more next week. And then something else for my final sermon, which is on the 30th of July. So final sermon here, Lord willing, as pastor. So Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 10 is our text today. So the word of God says this, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not where, what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on earth. If the tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes into the bones, comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and dawn of life are vanity. Let's pray again. Father, we give you great praise for the testimony of those three. We pray that you will continue to work in their lives. Continue to grow them as they walk with you. Lord, I pray for any here who see that testimony and they themselves are sensing your tug. Lord, I pray they would not, you would not relent. I pray that they would, they would come to Christ. I pray that today they will talk to somebody, perhaps an elder or a friend that they know to be a Christian. And they will ask them what it means to have eternal life, what it means to trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word. Father, we, we, we need the perspective that your word gives us because our perspective is dim It's faulty, it's blurry. So Father, I pray that your word will bring clarity and that we will know what we know and we will know what we cannot know and do not know and we will trust in you with hope, with faithfulness and with joy. And Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ. Thank you that... um, He died on the cross for us, that though we have gone astray, done our own thing, rebelled against you, offended you, you have loved us and you have given your son to save us. May our confidence as we leave here today be strong in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, in the 1960s, A missionary named Gene Dye Johnson wrote a book called God Planted Five Seeds. Uh, I don't think you'll be able to find it in print today. I read it maybe 25 years ago. The Lord really used it in my life. 
uh, when, when I was thinking about whether I should become a missionary. I think it is in digital. I think you can get it in Kindle, but not in print. The book tells the story of five missionary couples as they made contact with the Ijorde tribe in Bolivia in the 1940s. I've talked about them here before. Um, two years ago, I did. Um, but I think it'd be helpful this morning to consider it consider the story again in light of Ecclesiastes 11. It was the title of the book that actually made me think of it as I was studying Ecclesiastes. God planted five seeds. Remember that title. Those five couples sincerely believed that God's saving grace is for the nations and that he that his command for believers as expressed in the great commission is to take the good news of Jesus Christ to every nation and tribe and tongue and people group believing this knowing this they moved to South America and began working to establish contact with a tribal group that had very little interaction to that time with the outside world the Ijore the Ijorde lived in, a remote, in the remote jungles of Bolivia, some in Paraguay. They had been known to be violent towards outsiders when, when, when they came too close to their villages, like loggers when they came too close would sometimes have skirmishes. One of the missionaries, one of the men was a pilot, and this is kind of cool, especially if you're in aviation. He figured out this pilot, okay, the military later adopted this technology for other means, but uh, this pilot figured out how to fly, how to turn in such a way that there's one point of access to the ground, like one spot on the ground, and your relative distance from that spot doesn't change. You fly around that spot. Have you ever heard of this? Anybody who's a pilot? Anyway, it's pretty cool. Like, and the reason they did that, and the reason it's kind of important is because they wanted to lower a basket from the airplane, like not a helicopter, a plane, and it stay in one spot so that they could give gifts to, uh, to the Idrede tribe. This is how they want to make contact. So, the, so, so I, 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 that's pretty cool to me. But anyway, they, they started flying over this, these villages and they started doing that. They started lowering these baskets. The baskets would have machetes and different gifts in there for the, for the people. And, and basically it was like a pre-contact contact. They thought they did this enough when they landed, there'd be some friendly, hey, we remember, you know, we, you, you gave us these gifts. We've had, we've had some contact. So they did this and they, one day they pull it back up and there's a dead parrot in the basket. So the people have been taking the gifts out, you know, it, it was working. But one day there's a dead parrot and it's, it's like a gift. They're sure of it, like cooked parrot. I, I hear they taste like chicken, but there's a parrot there. And so they think, okay, we're, we're making headways. And they began praying in earnest to land on the beaches of the, of the river there that went through so that they can make contact with the people. Um, so they did it. They started praying. And, and then one day they, they picked a day and they went and they landed pretty close to one of the villages. And they wanted to meet them. So the five husbands, so they all had families. Five husbands got... Got into the plane, they flew to the village, they landed, they, they made contact, the people came out reluctantly at first, just the warriors, armed. But they looked friendly, they kept holding their hands out like this, friendly, they, not your enemies. And they shared more gifts, they brought more gifts with them to share with them, and they gave all the men gifts. They wanted the people to see that they were friendly. And for a few hours, everything was going well. The missionaries tried to communicate, especially they didn't know the Ijorde language, they, they tried to communicate that they came to love them, that they had a message, they wanted to preach to them, to teach them. They tried to help them see that they wanted to live there and help them know Jesus. At some point, one of the warriors grew agitated, visibly agitated and upset. And 
Later, this guy, he actually became a believer later on. He, uh, he, and, he, and he shared that he got mad because his gift wasn't as big as somebody else's, another warrior's. And he was getting angrier and angrier. And it, it, it culminated with him throwing a spear at one of the missionaries and killing him. And so there's that. And all the other warriors are like, what do we do now? And so they just attacked the men and they killed all five of them. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment about what these men knew, what they knew and what they didn't know and how that affected what they did. So what they knew, what they didn't know and how that dictated what they would do. And I want to do that because I think that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is teaching us in chapter 11. I think there's relevance here and I think you'll see it too. So here's what they knew. They knew that God had his saving eye on the nations. They knew that he is a savior of the world, not of Americans, but of the world, every people group. They knew the Ijode people lived outside of the reach of the gospel and thus in utter darkness and without any hope. They knew that the Ijode were sinners in need of God's grace. Those are things that they knew. And it, in part, drove them to give up all the comforts of post-war America for the jungles of Bolivia and ultimately to give up their lives. They also knew that God is sovereign and that he is able, if he so wills, to give a favorable disposition of the people towards the missionaries, right? He can, he can make it so that they like them and are not violent towards them. They believe that. They prayed for that. They knew that about God. They knew that God was trustworthy. They knew that they could trust God, right? They knew that as that hymn that we sing lately goes, they knew that they could leave it all to him. But there were some things they didn't know, right? They didn't know whether God would physically protect their lives. They didn't know whether they would be safe. They didn't know, and some of them wrote about the reality in their, this reality in their journals the night before, they did not know whether when they got on that plane for the final time, that they would ever come back to their wives and their small children. They did not know. So there were things that they knew and there were things that they did not know. And all of that together worked in them to do what they did, to live how they lived and to die how they died. There's more to that story and we're gonna to return to that in a moment and spend some time considering, after we spend some time considering the meat of this passage, so keep it all in mind. This is a passage that has everything to do with what we know and what we do not know and even what we cannot know, what we should know that we cannot know, if you can follow that, and how that should affect what we do, how we live this life that we've been given under the sun. What I found so helpful about it is that the preacher, Solomon, and by the way, I call him the preacher. Somebody asked me this, this last week. I, I call him the preacher because that's the way he identifies himself in the book of Ecclesiastes. I believe it is Solomon, but I'll just call him the preacher. He uses that, that reality, to show us how to live in light of that knowledge and that lack of knowledge. It's so practical, and I think it's very helpful as we consider how we should live our lives. In Ecclesiastes 11, there are a few things that the preacher wants you to know that you do not know. 
Okay, the first one is that you do not know what will happen in the future. You do not know what will happen in the future. I actually think that's what the word picture means in verse one, although it can go a couple of different ways. I think most of the commentators are right for thinking that this means that you do not, you do not know the future. So he says in verse one, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. And I think the preacher is basically saying you do not know the future. If you were to throw a loaf of bread on a pond, you know, in the water, you wouldn't expect that bread to last there for many days, would you? I mean, think of it for a second. You go to Briggs, take a load of a loaf of bread, throw it in the water. You think it'd be there after five days? Well, most of us would say no, right? We would think no. It, it, a couple hours, it'll sink. It'll get waterlogged and sink. The, the fish will eat it. Or maybe it'll just break apart. And I think his point is, perhaps maybe he saw this happen. Somebody throw bread on water and a couple of days later he came back and it was still there and he was surprised because you do not know the future. He did not know. He didn't expect it to happen that way. I think that's his point. Maybe you will be surprised to find it still there in a couple of days. You don't know the future, either good or bad. Verse two says, you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. You ever been caught by world events that you didn't expect. You don't know what will happen. You don't know what will happen. You can plan all you want. You know, Maya and I planned our wedding for September 5th, 2001. September 15th, rather, 2001. And we did try to consider all the different possibilities that could happen. You know, what, what should we do if it rains? What, what should we do if our paperwork, we were getting married in, in another country. So what should we do if our paperwork doesn't come through? Um, we tried to walk through the what ifs. You know, you do that if you're getting married, some of you. You work through the what ifs. Looking back, I guess I should have considered what we would do if on September 11th, four days before we were married, angry terrorists were to fly airliners into buildings. I didn't plan for that. I didn't plan for some of the wedding party to be stuck in U.S. airports Unable to travel to Siberia to be at our wedding. I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that our whole focus for a very long time would be those events. My point is, we don't know what will happen. You know, you can plan, you can try. You have no way of knowing. You have, isn't that humbling? You have no way of knowing. There are big things that we do not know and that we cannot know. James teaches us that we do not know even what tomorrow might bring. Listen to James chapter four, verses 13 through 16. James says, come now. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist I think he's read Ecclesiastes. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. This is a really, really hard truth. We, we don't know what might happen tomorrow. Often in our arrogance, often in our false confidence, we feel very sure of what will happen tomorrow. I will go to such and such a town on such and such a date and I will be there a year and I will trade and I will make a profit. Why does James say that's arrogant? 
because it is pretending to know something that you cannot possibly know. It is acting as if it is our work to know what tomorrow will bring, but it is not. It is not our work. This is God's work. And you do not know the work of God who makes everything. We do not know the future. We do not know the disasters that will happen upon the earth. We might anticipate certain things to happen in certain ways, but we do not know. Living and talking in a manner that does not acknowledge that reality is arrogant. We don't even know what the weather would be like, right? Do you love verse 3? If the clouds are full of rain, they will empty themselves on earth. That's about the, the most true weather prediction ever, right? It's going to rain somewhere, somehow, because of those clouds. I think the point is everything is out of our control. But I mean, everyone knows that clouds that are full of rain will empty themselves on earth. What they do not know is where, when, and how much rain, and will it like actually help my crops and my pastures? That'd be really helpful, right? I mean, if you're trying to plan stuff, what you'll feed your cows next winter, all of that. But you do not know, and the point is you cannot know, and it is out of your control. Look at verse 5. As you do not know the way that the Spirit comes to the bones in, a, in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. And I think that is the big humbling point of this passage. We do not know the work of God who makes everything. We do not know what our health will be like tomorrow. We do not know what our job will be like tomorrow. We do not know what our church will be like tomorrow. We don't know what will become of our friends and our friendships tomorrow or how things will go with our spouses tomorrow or how our children will be tomorrow. We do not know. We do not know. How many of you are in a place or a circumstance today that you did not expect just a few short years ago? We do not know. We do not know. Wrapping our minds around that massive uncertainty of this world around us, and even in our own lives, I think it's one of the big points of Ecclesiastes and certainly of Ecclesiastes 11. We do not know. But there are things we do know. In the midst of that, in the midst of that uncertainty, there are things that we know, and he points to those in this chapter. We know that it is all in the hands of God. That's the other side of the coin in verse 5. It is the work of God. We do not know, but God does. He is the only one who knows with certainty where the clouds will empty themselves, where that tree log will fall. And that is because it is all the work of God. He knows it all. God knows the disasters that will happen on earth. He knows which seeds will, that we plant will, will grow and prosper and which ones will not. God knows. This is, this is his purview. This is his providence. This is the work of God. Friends, it is God who is sovereign, not us. We can know that. I love Ecclesiastes 11 because it's not just intended to help us to make sense of the hard things we face in life. There's a day, it talks about a day here. The preacher is helping us to make sense of it all. The good, the bad, the suffering, the pleasure. He says, we can know that there are light days. There is day. Look, look at verse seven. Light is sweet and it is pleasant to the eyes to see the sun. There, there is day. 
We, we can know that God in his kindness brings good days and good gifts. Uh, there are sunrises and sunsets. There are lovely spring days and there are fall colors. There is watermelon to eat in the summer. There are births. There are birthdays. There are 16th birthdays on June 16th, July 16th. There are births and birthdays and weddings and wedding nights. There are anniversaries, 35th anniversaries. <laughs> there are lovely mountain meadows. There are chirping birds in the morning and cool springs, lakes, lakes to swim in on hot days. There are babies and their little hands and their feet and the way they, they, they feet and the way they coo. And there are toddlers and all the adorable things that they say. There's coffee and steak and cheese and wine and oceans and ski slopes, horses, deer, friendships, love. There's day. We can know that. That's a kindness of the Lord to us. And here in chapter 11, he's telling us to rejoice. And on the other side of that, we can know that there is night. There are many days of darkness. You can see that in verse 8 too. Remember that the days of darkness will be many. I take that to mean that we should know that along with the good and the pleasure and the gifts of the Lord, there is suffering. And for what it's worth, for those of us who are aging, he seems to be tying that suffering explicitly with aging in verse 8. There are years of youth to rejoice in and enjoy, and there are, also, there are also dark days. Indeed, there are many of them. The preacher is ever aware that we live in a world that is broken by sin, and we live in bodies that are broken by sin. And that means that there is real suffering. There is real suffering. And no one wants it. No one wants suffering. No one wants to see their health fail. No one likes funerals. No one enjoys the prospect of seeing their usefulness and their independence decrease while their need of others increases. No one enjoys suffering. But the, day, the dark days come and they are many. There is suffering in this world and we can know that. Here's something else that we can know. Something else that's certain. Think about certainties that we know. We can know that there is, that we will one day give an account for the way that we walk through this life. You can see that in verse nine at the end of it. Know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Judgment is certain. We are accountable to God for the way that we live. God will bring judgment. You can know that. As Real as the air that you breathe today, you can know that God will judge sin. All of it. That's, that's a sweet reality that, I mean, there's a, there's a, that reality ought to draw us to the sweetness of the cross, right? Judgment is certain. God does not overlook sin. A holy God does not overlook sin. He does not overlook sin. Not a single one, every sin, all sin is accounted for by the one who judges all things. Your judgment, let me put it this way. When Jesus hung on the cross, you know why he hung there? He hung there for judgment. He hung there for your judgment if you are in him. When he rose from the dead, he did so because he had satisfied the judgment of God against every sin for everyone whose faith is in Christ alone. 
We know that judgment is certain and we know that Jesus died for us and those are sweet truths for sinners to know. And I just have to ask, I hope that you will ponder this. Do do you know that? I mean, is that your confidence today? I mean, do you know that sin will be judged? Do you know that God judges sin? And are you looking to Christ, the Savior, who satisfied that judgment on the cross? So let's do this. Let's put together what we know and what we do not know so that we can then consider how we should live, what we should do. We don't know the future, either good things or bad things. We can plant a crop, but we don't know whether it will yield or prosper. We do not know. We don't know the weather. You know, every, every, uh, every spring, I talk to ranchers who are sure it's going to drought out this year. Every spring, because that's the big fear, right? It's going to drought out. We don't know. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know anything. We don't know, we don't know how long our lives will go on. We don't know how long we will enjoy good health. We don't know if we'll live to be 100 years old or if this is our final week. We don't know. You do not know. You might sit there and think, that's silly. Of course I'm going to live out this week. All such talk is arrogance. You don't know. We don't know. We do not know the work of God who makes everything. But we do know that it is the work of God. We do know that God is sovereign over all these unknowns and that none of these unknowns are unknowns to God. God is providentially working. We know this through everything, literally everything. He is the one who decides which seeds prosper and which ones won't. He is the one who decides the number of your days. He, we, we, we know that he knows that. We know that he is the one, that this is the work of God. We know that there is day and it is enjoyable and meant to be enjoyed. There is youth and youth is good. There's much to rejoice in. And knowing that, knowing that should bring you joy today. And we know that there is night. We know that there is suffering. Some of you know that reality very well already. All of us will know that reality. There is judgment too. We will one day give an account before the judge of heaven and earth. So here's the big question that this chapter answers really well. Given what you know, given what we know, and what we know that we do not know, what should we do? How should we live now? Knowing what we know and knowing what we do not know. Look at verse six. The preacher says, in the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I think that means, friends, that in light of all that we know and know that we do not know, we should set our hearts and our minds and our bodies to be faithful. Not knowing the outcome does not mean not doing things. We should work. Knowing that it is all in the hands of God and that this is a work of God, this is the work of God, does not mean that we should be passive or uncaring about our work as if nothing matters. There is nothing in Ecclesiastes 11 or in the Bible that should lead us towards fatalistic passivity. 
nothing. We know that this is ultimately his work and not ours. And that should lead us and prompt in us to work with all of our might to be faithful with what he has given us to do. And laced throughout this passage is the disposition of joy that we should have as we approach these things. Verses eight and nine, both say rejoice. You do not know how long the the light days are or how long your youth will last, but rejoice in every gift from the Lord. Joyful faithfulness is the response of knowing what we know about God and what we do not know about this world. Joyful faithfulness. We have no idea what tomorrow holds, but we can be faithful today with joy in the work that God has given us today. We can and we should sow our seeds with joy. And this implies, I think, that we should do so. We should sow those seeds with our hope in God. And I'm putting that together because he's saying, look, you don't know which seed's gonna prosper. You don't know the work of God, so plant. Well, why would you do that? Like you would plant knowing this is the work of God. I'm going to trust in him. My hope will be in God. Again, this is his work. Our hope and our faith and our confidence must be in God. We do not trust ultimately in statistics or almanacs or our insurance or our own planning, the way we can manage a thing, our wits, none of that. We don't trust in those things. We trust in God. This is the work of God. If we believe that, then our hope and our confidence must be in him. And I just, is that where your hope and your confidence is today in him? with the work that you know that you have before you today, with your situation in life, are you trusting in him? Is that where your confidence is for the future? For the future of this church? Let's go back to those five missionaries who decided to make contact with the Ijore, what they knew, what they didn't know, You know, it's exactly the same things that we know and that we do not know. Exactly the same. They knew they couldn't know their future. They knew that disaster might come and they knew that they couldn't know if it would. They didn't know, they couldn't know whether the people would receive them, reject them, love them, or kill them. They didn't know. They could not know the work of God who makes everything. But you know what they did know? They knew that they were called to be faithful. They knew that they were called to sow seeds and entrust the outcome and even their own lives and their own well-being, the well-being of their families. I mean, you think of all that they were trusting God for as they got on that airplane. It's one thing to trust the Lord with my life as if it didn't affect anyone else. It's another to think, I'm gonna get on this airplane and my kid might be an orphan tomorrow. They knew they can entrust all of that to the Lord. They knew they could trust God, the one who makes everything. So with joyful hope in God, they went to Bolivia to faithfully sow their seeds among the Ijore. Now the cynic, the cynic might hear this story and think, in fact, someone recently said this to me, a lot of good that did them. They were faithful, they were joyful, they were hopeful, and that got them a spear in the belly and a painful death in the sand. A lot of good that did them. Great example, Mike. 
I don't want to plant a seed that's just unfruitful, right? So why are you telling this story? Because I want you to consider with me the work of God in them that they couldn't know. They couldn't know. You see, the seeds they planted, those five seeds, their lives, dying there on that beach, that they faithfully planted, those seeds grew. We're 75 years past that point, and today there are tall and steady trees among the Ijodei. Faithful believers. We're like Gen 5 now of believers. You see, those trees grew up. They put out seeds. New saplings grew up. They put out seeds. And here we are today. There's a church, a thriving church among the Ijodei people. There are tall trees planted around the world that can trace their heritage right back to those trees that were in that beach in Bolivia. Men and women who have been inspired by their testimony, who have likewise joyfully and hopefully and confidently gone into the world with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've planted churches in South America and in Asia and in Africa and in Oceania. There's a church among the Buryats in Siberia that is a tree that grew from a seed that was planted I mean, a couple of generations later, but that was planted in Bolivia. It would take a while to explain this. And many of you, I, I don't want to do that this morning, but many of you have been affected for the good because of some seeds that were planted in Bolivia that day. We have reasons to rejoice. We, as Ridgeview Bible Church, we have reasons to rejoice in those five seeds that were planted. Those men getting on that airplane could not possibly have known the extent of the fruitfulness of the seeds they were planting. They had no idea. And that's the point of Ecclesiastes 11. You do not know the work of God. You do not know. And that's true. You do not know. You don't know what the days, what days will be light, what days will be darkness. You do not know what seeds will grow and be fruitful and last and what seeds will dry up and die. You do not know. And that's okay. That's okay. You know God. You know that God is faithful. You know that God is good. You know that this is his work. And all of that knowing and not knowing ought to stir in your heart joyful, confident hope and result in faithfulness in your life. I think God, through the preacher of Ecclesiastes, I think he is calling us to joyful, hopeful faithfulness with our lives and our work and our money, our efforts, our ambitions, our church. Stop trusting in simply what you can see and what you think will be. Stop. It's not our work. All such talk is arrogance. Start trusting in the one who, whose purview this is, whose work this is. Oh, the facade of control and security. We have none of it, but we have God. We have God. So friends, this is my message to you this morning. Trust in the Lord and be faithful. Will you be faithful 
in this situation that you're in that you don't like, will you be faithful? Will you be faithful in the situation that you're in that you cannot see the end of this? You cannot understand where it's going. There's so many things going on, so many ways your heart is prone to worry. Can you be faithful in that and just simply trust in the Lord? This is the work of God. You cannot know the work of God who makes everything. You can trust him though. And you, I can say this with all the authority of the scriptures, you will find him faithful. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us as believers to trust in you. I pray that we would not trust in what we can simply see or plan. I pray that we will not simply trust in what we hope will be of a situation. I pray, Lord, through that your word, through your grace, you will train our hearts to trust in you. Train us to rest in your grace. That we might rejoice in you always. And let our reasonableness be known to everyone because we know the Lord is at hand. And that we will not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, we will make our request known to you. And that we will enjoy the peace of Christ that will guard our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.